So in chapter 60, the Lord had made those statements about arise and shine and how their light had come, speaking of how the nations would come to Israel and uh, the Lord was going to make them majestic forever. And uh, the fact that God would be their glory was what he was saying in chapter 60, 61, verse 1. And he begins to talk about the good news of salvation. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me <clears throat> to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified, that is, God may be glorified. So, of course, you know, Jesus in Luke chapter 4, you might want to look there with me, beginning at verse 16. Uh, it says, so he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. When he'd opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to recover the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. I read it because, verse 20 then says, he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You'll notice, comparing Isaiah 61 to Luke 4, that Jesus stops reading this passage when he gets to where it says, and the day of the vengeance of our God. This is the acceptable year of the Lord. Everything that Jesus is giving and providing and being is salvation and beauty and deliverance and healing. Vengeance is exempt uh, from that moment in his uh, you know, ministry. It's there. Jesus is God. He, he holds judgment in his hands. But it was very different than what the Jews especially were expecting. They were expecting that their Messiah was going to come with vengeance in his hands. They were looking for that conquering hero to come. Jesus stops right at that statement and says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Everything up to that point. Now, you know, 70 A.D., Israel is destroyed, Jerusalem is sacked, so many millions of people killed. The day of the vengeance of the Lord arrives. 
their rejection of their Messiah, thereby the rejection of God, delivers them into the hands of their enemies, and they suffer the consequences for almost 2,000 years until God rebuilds their country and brings them back in. There's an important understanding in the character of God. When we're experiencing God's grace and his grace and his grace and his grace, know that his judgment is out there. Know that the final day is a real thing. You know, so many people within modern Christianity act like, oh, this is just how it always is. Uh, there's a day of judgment. There is a standing before God. There is a fearful intrepidation. You know, we need to walk as, you know, the scripture says, circumspectly. We need to be sober about our state of existence so that we're walking reverentially before the Lord. I, I've had many conversations. I always like the wisdom of older pastors. You know, they, they get past all of the politics of things sometimes. They they remove all of the, you know, sort of infighting and weirdness that is Christianity, and they get really simple. You talk to them about, what do you see? What's the big problem in the church today? I'll tell you, it's been startling to realize how many of them say, there's no fear of the Lord. There's no fear of God. That's not a thing within the modern church. You know, even when we talk about the fear of the Lord, uh, people want to quickly qualify what we're talking about. You know, or just like respect. We're not talking about like being afraid of God. You know, it's just, you know, Jesus himself is telling his apostles, you shouldn't be afraid of the person on earth who can kill you. You need to be concerned about the one who can throw your body and your soul into hell. That's God alone. There needs to be that respect. You know, once we come to understand God and once we, you know, come to walk with him as our father, that fear changes where it's, it's not, you know, the hopeless uh, looking forward to judgment as Hebrews describes. You know, it's the idea of the correction and the discipline that the Lord is providing. So Jesus here has fulfilled what was written in this passage, and the Lord will fulfill the remainder. In particular, what a beautiful statement about how the Lord is going to comfort all who mourn, you know, console those who mourn in Zion, beauty for ashes, oil for mourning, garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness. I think it's important to recognize that God is going to do that replacement. You know, it's, it's not as though, um, you know, we can always deliver ourselves from such heavy circumstances you know I'm, I'm always bothered by people who you know are on the outside of someone's problems looking in and criticizing them as though oh they just sort of you know there's an old statement they just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps you know quaint picturesque Thanks for the image, but in the end, you can't do that. It really does need to have, you know, to be that Jesus Christ is ministering to us. He's the one who's giving us the beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness. You know what I'm talking about when you're in the depths of sorrow and along comes happy Christian who wants to just tell you, you know, you know, 
turn that frown upside down, you know, and all of those other absurd things that you just, you want to choke them for. Hey, do you understand the pressure I'm under? Do you understand the pain? I mean, and maybe, you know, the root of what they're saying is a good idea, but it really does, it has to be a thing that the Lord does to our heart and to our spirit. You know, the world is filled, America is filled with anxiety and depression and psychotic thoughts and behavior. And rather than look to the Lord, we're trying to do every other thing possible to change ourselves. This spirit that Jesus Christ delivers, the Holy Spirit, and its effective work in our hearts is what is needed. The change that would you know, cause me to not be negative. The, the change of the Holy Spirit that would cause me to be filled with love and joy rather than burdened by all of the difficulties I'm going through. I've shared with you many times before, you sit down with certain people to counsel them, and especially as a pastor, you got a little of that, you know, savior mentality going on, like you're going to pull them out of their problems, and they start pouring out to you, and quickly you're like, oh my goodness, this is way bigger than I thought. And then they expose to you that their problems are light years beyond your capability of dealing with it. And that's when you go to, oh, well, we need to just pray. Yeah, that's what you needed to do in the beginning. Because even if I can say to you what needs to be said to lift your heart up, what you really need, what I need, is the Holy Spirit to literally change my heart, to make something different of my circumstances. Now, this is what Jesus is doing when he arrives in the world. He brings to humanity something that humanity hasn't experienced previously. Not in this way. The outpouring of his spirit. Certainly we see individuals throughout history who had the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But now he's given this promise through Isaiah and through Joel that you know, in the last days I'm going to pour my spirit out on all flesh. This is available to us. This conversion, this great joy, this removal of you know, the, the difficulty. So that right here, this statement that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Does it ring a bell, that statement? Because my mind immediately goes to Psalm 1. You know, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Stands in the way of the sinner, sits in the seat of the scornful, but you know, he shall delight in the law of the Lord, and in his law he shall meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. You know, his leaf will not wither, his fruit will, you know, come forth in due season. The, the fruitfulness, the strength, the steadfastness, the permanency of the person who's filled with the Holy Spirit and what they produce in their own life and the world around it. That's what is needed in this world. Now, particularly Israel is, you know, at a point of rebellion and sin that God is telling them that he's going to bring this restoration to them as they're being destroyed. So he gives that promise, and he follows that, 61.4, and they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolation of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen. 
your vine dressers. Uh, the thought that the city would ever be, once it was ruined, once uh, Jerusalem was destroyed and they were taken away captive by the Babylonians, now they're going to be there for 70 years. You hear the despair when Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah come back and begin to look at the city. You know, it's the sort of thing like you forgot how bad it was. You've <laughs> been away for 70 years. You know, some of them came back having never seen it. You know, they've, they've heard of the old world. They've heard of the old city. Uh, you know, they've even heard of the destruction and the ruins. But then they arrive, and not only is it laid waste, but there's 70 years of overgrowth that has occurred. You can hardly tell where things were previously. Their hearts are broken, and that's where we get that statement about, you know, not by strength, not by might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. There's a rubber bells walking around looking at all these mounds of burned rock and rubble and destroyed city and thinking in his heart, impossible. Nothing is going to happen here. None of this is going to come to place. And of course, the prophecy goes on that you're going to say to these mountains of rubble and ruin, be removed and they'll be taken out of the way. And what did it come down to? Just sheer determination to follow the will of the Lord step by step. Just go through the process of clearing away the brush and the bramble and removing all the shattered and broken rock and rubble that can't be used and stockpiling what you have and starting the construction and set the foundations and build. You just move forward. There's a lot of what it comes down to, being filled with the Spirit and plodding our way through very difficult circumstances until... Things we couldn't have imagined are going on. Strangers are tending our flocks. People from foreign lands are now working for us. They were taken away captive into other countries, and now the blessing of the Lord on their lives. You know, some of us know what that was like to be completely enslaved to our addiction and our sin. And then the promise comes I'm going to deliver you. And we are delivered, and then the prosperity and progress of our lives, we look back years later and think, how did I get here? How did all this goodness end up in my life? The work of the Lord, the Holy Spirit completing his work and accomplishing what he wants to. Verse 6 says, but you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. Instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, their land they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. Um, the nation of Israel uh, being brought back into the land and the great restoration uh, that is given to them. Certainly some of this has already taken place, but you move forward to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ in the time when you know the king of Israel is ruling the whole earth. The people of the earth uh, will be honoring Israel as they never have before. You know, the Gentiles, you know, bringing the riches of food to them. 
the the great blessing and honor and the double portion of glory and honor that's going to come to them. You think about that, you guys. When we come to the place where the rebellion against God, the rejection of Jesus Christ worldwide is done away with. Now, God is known, Jesus is known as the king, and he's seated upon his throne. And Israel is now functioning as his priests and preaching and spreading his gospel throughout the whole world. When the world is acceptant of this, you understand, wholeheartedly you know, embracing Israel and Jesus Christ, think about what a blessing Israel will be. Just the raw realization of this is the nation that brought salvation to this world that Jesus Christ himself came through. That when the proper respect for what God has done through his people is known and experienced, I think it's going to be a really amazing thing to you know, have, have it experience, know, understand, go through here on planet Earth. I think it's going to be you know, a much bigger blessing than a lot of people think of. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery uh, for burnt offerings. I will direct their work in truth. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. Now, the more I read about this statement, I hate robbery for burnt offerings, the more confused I got. So it's just, there's like a million different ways that people interpret it. If I look at the most consistent and I look at what I'm able to derive from the language in my very limited understanding, you know, the idea of, you know, stealing something in order to give it to God. You know, I hate robbery for burnt offering. Yeah, that would make sense. The idea, even the idea of people giving him things that they really don't want to give him. They don't have that joyful heart in the process. You know, God is saying, I really want this whole thing to be a blessing. I really want worship, you know, to follow after me. In truth, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. You know, the posterity thereof. You know, all future generations of people whom the Lord has blessed. The realization of, of God's blessing. I, I am always amazed and startled when I hear that somebody hates Israel. You know, you just, it's like, I, I don't know, I guess that type of. Racism and bigotry is just foreign to me. I don't understand it. And in particular, uh, to see people uh, clinging to that old anti-Semitism, that, that real hatred for Jews. You know, you, you uh, hear them start to crack in public and then pretty quick, oh, you know, Jews control all the banking and out comes all the filth and the hatred and the garbage. What a strange thing that we live in a world where people hate an entire race of people and they don't even really know why. 
It's the connection to God. And when that is removed, when, when the world understands Jesus is God and there he is on his throne and those are his people and gosh, don't I love the whole picture. That's going to be a great thing to, to not have the poison of Lucifer himself seething through the hearts and minds of the human race. Uh, to have the love of the Lord filling this earth, as, as the scripture says, it's going to fill the earth you know, his righteousness will fill the earth like the seas. That's going to be a wonderful thing to have his love flood our whole existence. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, verse 10 says. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Now, I personally, you know, a lot of preachers have their own sort of weird um, pet subjects, and this is one of mine. It's not a huge thing to me. Um, I, I don't uh, preach this as though everybody needs to believe this. But the issue of uh, Adam and Eve being naked in the garden, there's a possibility, and again, this might just be one of those weird will cast fringe things, and if that's how it turns out for you, just throw the whole thing in the trash, okay? If it does something to help you see something and makes sense to you, great, but it is my own observation. So there's a possibility, the way things are written out, that Adam and Eve were actually clothed in the garden in the righteousness of God. So you see here how he's clothing them in garments of salvation, robes of righteousness. You see many points like uh, the saints that are under the throne in the book of Revelation. They're crying out to God, how long before you avenge our deaths? And he says, yet but a little while and gives them a white robe of righteousness to wear. And we see that throughout the scripture that in the presence of the Lord, his believers are clothed in light clothed in righteousness you know and maybe it never was maybe just their innocence masked their eyes from understanding but you know within this in our sinful culture there's this mentality of oh right like the garden of eden was you know some kind of nudist colony god is into clothes okay it isn't like the more holy and the more pure and the more than, you know, you're just so pure that you don't think about these things. Therefore, it was possible for them to be naked and not have any of that thought. It's possible they were clothed. God is repeatedly telling us to be clothed, even be more clothed. You know, that there should be that desire within us to be clothed in Christ to a greater and greater degree. The scripture talks about putting off the old man and putting on Jesus Christ. Um, however it may have been in the garden, I think that when we are in the presence of the Lord, as it says he is clothed in light, I believe we will be. That these garments that are being spoken of here perhaps are Something like what Peter, James, and John experienced there on the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus was transformed and his clothes radiated as lightning, as the sun at noonday, as the scripture says. I'm anxious to find out about all of these little things and how they're going to work once we're in the presence of the Lord. It may just be 
that he's giving us this illustration, sort of a metaphor of how we're going to be clothed with garments of salvation. I think it's more literal than that, though. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, as the bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud and the garden causes things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. A very spontaneous response from the nations as they see God for what he is. For, you know, all of the anger and rebellion and hatred that the world may have towards God, once seeing him in person, all of that is just going to be swept away and they'll know God for who he is. So now in chapter 62, we look at the assurance of Zion's salvation in verse 1. It says, for Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest till her righteousness goes forth as brightness and as her salvation and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. Now, I talked a little bit um as we were studying through the book of Exodus, and we see there the development of the priest's robes, and it specifically talks about the Urim and Thummim that he would keep in the pouch and breastplate, and uh, how they would determine the will of the Lord through the Urim and the Thummim. It is thought that the Urim and Thummim were two stones of identical cut, uh, one black, one white, and they would be in the pouch of the priest, and he would pray and inquire of the Lord in such a way that the answer could be yes or no, or a positive or a negative. And then he would reach in the pouch and take out a stone, and if it was the white stone, the, the answer was thought to be a yes or the affirmative. And if it was the black stone, the answer was no or in the negative. That's all speculation. We don't know. But from that, some things do emerge from the belief system. You've heard the term of being blackballed. Okay? Um, and you get to the uh, uh, book of Revelation, and we're told that we each will be given a new name that's written on a white stone. So the idea there is your old uh, existence is gone. You're a new person. And... You're approved by God. The white stone, an indication of yes or approval, is sort of what's being relayed there. The simple concept of being given a new name is something that especially uh, New Testament Christianity really held on to. You know, some of you might have had the opportunity to even be around uh, the Russian Orthodox and the Greek Orthodox Church who to this day, they still give Christian names to new converts. So when somebody comes into the faith, they ask them to choose a Christian name for themselves. So whatever their name was that they were born and given within the church, uh, they can be known by a new name, uh, you know, to, to symbolize their faith. So Christianity was very much doing that. And, and you're even familiar with the fact that you know, Saul of Tarsus, 
became the Apostle Paul. His name was changed uh, by the Lord. You can even see uh, Jesus Christ going through a few of the apostles and renaming them. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, not so positive a new name. You know, uh, Simon is now suddenly known as Pebbles. You know, the, the term is literally rocky. You know, it's 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 not a term of boldness and um, you know elevation. It's the idea of more more like uh, the idea of the pebble that's in your shoe, you know, the, the the stone that is always sort of nagging you, the, the one that is just there. Uh, you know, under your foot to cause you to stumble or trip, or you got to kick off the walkway. You, you know, you get the impression from certain people that when Jesus Christ says you'll no longer be known as Simon, that today I call you Cephas or Peter, that that was some grand moment, like near the rock. <laughs> you know, that's not what it was at all. I mean, at best, it was rocky, and it was it was much more like pebbles. You know, from now on, I'm going to call you pebbles. I mean, at that point, you're like taking him aside, hoping, like, can I just plead my cause on that name? Can we get something else going on? You know, can you call me like Dragon Slayer or I don't know, anything? No, you're going to be Pebbles. That's who you're going to be. You know, Sons of Thunder, right? James, and I don't know what direction that, you know, whole insult was going. You call somebody a Son of Thunder, you're saying that they're unpredictable and loud and maybe even startling and obnoxious. But, you know, if you're pointing at their mother, right, it's even more abrasive. Jesus handed out new because it was their mom that brought them to Jesus and said, listen, when you enter your kingdom, can you do me a favor and make sure each of my boys have a place on your right hand and your left hand? You know, and right after that, you know, he's naming them sons of thunder. You know, was Mom Thunder you know, sort of obnoxious and loud and startling and inserting herself into places that she doesn't belong? A new name. Much better when it's a white stone, a name of approval and something that the Lord is uh, giving us as, as a, a new identity in Him. This great blessing that the Lord is going to bring. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I, for Zion's sake, I will hold my peace. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, as we said, her salvation is the lamp that burns. Gentiles see your righteousness, all the kings, your glory shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall also be, uh, you shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of the Lord. You shall no longer be termed forsaken that's interesting to me nor shall your land any more be termed desolate but you shall be called hefsba in your land beulah and those both mean my delight is in her or you are married and he gives explanation uh, for the lord delights in you and your land shall be married so where it was desolate and barren and left alone previously God is uh, going to restore it and cause it to be a thing that's claimed by him and 
married to him, you know, attached to him. I think it's very significant because there are those uh, that say God has replaced Israel theologically, that he now deals with the church and he no longer deals with Israel. He no longer is going to fulfill all the things that he said in the scripture about Israel. This is a promise from the Lord. They were never forsaken. God never abandoned them. Even as they were being sent off into their trouble and going through their hardships, God was still orchestrating his plan in their lives. So it's very significant that we remember that. Because as our lives are going through you know, whatever torturous states they may go through from time to time, God has not forsaken us. If we're professing to be children of God and asking uh, you know, that he would provide us with salvation, then we have the same promises. Israel was not replaced. There is a, now the church and Israel is no more. God is restoring them. God has restored them. And all the promises that he's you know, set out for them, they are going to be fulfilled like they would be for a wife, like they would be for those that are you know, a delight to him. In verse 5, it says, For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And all the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The, the picture of wedding, the picture of marriage. This is the depth of relationship that God has with his people. It's, it is not um, religious. It is not that God has some kind of you know, contractual agreement with a group of people who refer to themselves as Christians. This is not a business deal. This is love. This is God in love with his people and having a marital relationship with his people. Um, uh, it's so unfortunate that we've come to the place um, in America and in the world where marriage is so cheap. We, we've damaged it and destroyed it and wrecked it and ruined it. And now you start putting out these illustrations about a relationship with God and people don't understand uh, you know, what that means. What, what is marriage? What, what do you mean by these commitments? What do you mean by, uh, you know, this permanent relationship that the Lord is describing here? Our culture, you know, at this point isn't even sure, you know, whether marriage is between one man and one woman. Uh, what, what is marriage? How do we define this? You know, there are people that now have said, right, now now we need to, you know, change and move so now we can have marriage between several men or women and one another. You know, let's let's go ahead uh, with having multiple spouses. And it gets stranger and stranger by the minute. This was a sacred relationship established by God that was supposed to actually be eternal. Adam and Eve were going to live for eternity. One man, one woman for the rest of existence was God's intention. All of that was supposed to be reflective of his relationship with the human race. He, he was married to us. He gave birth to us and wanted to have that intimacy of family and you know, deep understanding. Uh, you know, we've gotten to the place where we don't have deep anything. Uh, we're, we're not. We, we want to go from one 
very shallow emotional experience to the next shallow emotional experience to the next to the next to the next. You know, attention deficit disorder. You know, do some reading on what they think it is and how it works, why it's developed this way. You know, the most important developments for your entire life and how you're going to function occur in the first 18 months of your existence. That's frightening to me to think about what my household was like when I was raising each of my children for the first 18 months of their life. You know, stability and predictability and love and acceptance and nurturing and learning. You know, these are the things that are so critical to family and development. You know, right, right now, uh, child development doctors are completely freaked out by the fact that children as young as 18 months are already having uh, screens in their hand, electronics in their hands. You know, my granddaughter likes to look at the pictures on my phone, just our family pictures. So she'll frequently come up and sit next to me and say something like, can we look at it? Can we see the pictures? Can we look at it? And if she finds my phone, she starts opening stuff up and swiping through on her own. She doesn't always end up in the right place, but she knows how. You know, press this and press that and swipe that to the side and just. When we've been developing like this from our birth, now how far off track God's intention are we? When the images are constantly changing, when there's no settling upon reading and growing and understanding. Um, a very concerning thing. When you consider that these illustrations of family and marriage are put forward here, and when you sit down and you try to share this with somebody, you've got to explain and define marriage before you can even move on properly. Just to help people understand a relationship with God. You know, it wasn't that long ago that even if people didn't have good marital relationships, they understood what good marriage was. Now, they don't even understand what that is. You know, well, we're going to culture just behind us that's coming up, like I say, that's had screens in their hands from the very beginning of their lives. What's that generation going to be like? What are they not going to understand? You know, you're presenting the word of God to a culture and to a nation that's fading away from this so fast that we're literally going to have to be evangelizing the next generation as though they're a foreign people. They, they haven't even, you know, dealt with any of this. I'm sure many of us in this room have started conversations with people about the Lord, about Christianity, the faith, the Bible. And their understanding is so completely off base, right? You, you, you end up spending hours just redefining everything. Marriage, delightful experience, fulfillment, the Lord is describing. That's what he wants between his people and him. 62.6. I've set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord do not keep silence. So these watchmen uh, back in the day 
were to constantly be alert, watchful, and they would sound the alarm if there was any worry, concern, or you know, actual attack. Just wake the people so that they could deal with whatever circumstances were coming upon them. So this is a spiritual picture that he's putting forward, and he's saying, I've put watchmen on the walls. Now, you might not want to listen to my people, my ministers, but I've put watchmen on the walls, and they're not going to be silent. They're not going to keep their mouths shut. They're not going to see things that are dangerous and just smooth it over. That's, that's how you identify who are God's watchmen and who are not. Because God's watchmen are always going to raise the alarm. They're always going to warn about dangers. You know, there's that whole movement within the church like, oh, hey, don't shake you know, things up. Don't rock the boat. We need to create you know, as peaceful, as quiet, as accepting, loving, you know, non-judgmental an environment as we can possibly create. What happens if there's real danger? What if there's real sin in the lives of the people present? Don't they need to know that? Don't they need to be warned? Isn't it the watchman's duty to sound the alarm? Oh, well, it's not very loving. It was so harsh. I was all, you know, happy in my quiet little place. Somebody came in with the light of God's word and just blared it right into my whole life and started shouting at me about how I was living in sin and just, oh, it was horrible. More horrible than going to hell? I suspect not. The watchman's so supposed to sound the alarm. That's his job. If he's not sounding the alarm, my suspicion is he's not a watchman sent by God. God's servants are going to warn. They're going to say the things that need to be said. They're not going to keep silent. They give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. You know, God's not going to slack off until he's accomplished these things. The length of time that goes by, the decades and the years that pass for us sometimes leave us thinking that somehow God has fallen off, that somehow he's taking this exorbitant amount of time to accomplish it, and he's not. He's doing it exactly where he wants, exactly in the time. And when we consider what Peter's saying in the New Testament, we know that that drawn-out period is because God is patient and wants people to get saved. You know, He's not slack, as some consider slackness, but he's patient, uh, not willing that any would perish, but all would come to repentance. It says, thanks, brother. It says here, um, continuing, <coughs> the Lord has sworn by his right hand, which... Jesus is often referred to as the Lord's right hand, and he's certainly seated at God's right hand. By his right hand and by the arm of his strength, surely I will no longer give your grain as food to your enemies, and your sons of the foreigner shall not drink of your new wine, for which you have labored. And that was constantly going on. You think about like Gideon with... Uh, uh, the Midianites and how they were harvesting grain early and 
working through it before the Midianites could come and get it and, you know, thrashing out the grain in secret because uh, they would get just about to vintage time and just about to harvest and the Midianites would come in and just harvest and wipe out everything. God is saying, I'm going to stop that. I'm going to stop your enemies from coming in and uh, taking advantage of you in that way. Those who have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. Those who have brought it together shall drink it in my holy courts. You know, the, the blessing of the Lord and the way that he's going to accomplish fulfilling all of these things and the frustrations that are you know, going to go away. Presently, Israel is constantly in that state of, you remember when Nehemiah rebuilt the wall and uh, they were going around with their trowel in one hand to fix the mortar and set the blocks and their sword in the other hand in order to do the work. And, you know, you go to Jerusalem and tourism is huge and the land is beautiful and here are all these people and, you know, and you turn around and there's a soldier with a Mac 9 standing right behind you. You know, and all over, you know, I'm, I'm looking at 17, 18 year old kids, no exaggeration, running down the street in uniform with their M16 slung over their back because they're late for their next class. That was Israel. And they, they live in the state of constant ready in order to fight and protect themselves and keep themselves safe. There's a day coming where all that blessing will be in place and none of that fear will be there for them. It's all going to be the Lord and how he you know, makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17 says, The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The great praise and blessing of the Lord, the way that he loves us. It's interesting to think about, you know, the Lord rejoicing over you with singing. Uh, any of us that have raised children, you know, have usually learned somewhere along the way that you can just sort of cradle them and rock them in your arms sing Jesus loves me over and over again and they'll you know receive that comfort and experience and just fade away from whatever's troubling them you know the 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 the, the great dilemma they had moments ago washes away if you'll just quiet them and take the time but this is sort of the image that the Lord is giving us that he's going to cradle us and care for us and sing over us and rejoice over us that old statement you've heard me say countless times. It was Joe Foch I first heard say it. You know, said, of course, God loves me. I know he loves me and he must love me. I'm just amazed that he likes me. You know, and, and that's sort of what's being said here is he's going to sing over us. He rejoices over us. It isn't that he tolerates us. Yeah, well, that's, that's one of my kids. I got nice kids. I got good kids, but then I got that kid. That's not how the Lord looks at us. He rejoices about us. He rejoices over us. He truly loves us. 62.10, go through. Go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Uh, take out the stones. Lift up a banner for the peoples. A couple things. This is a little bit like what John the Baptist was doing and saying. Make straight the way of the Lord. You know, remove 
the rocks that you would stumble over, build up the road where it you know drops way down, smooth out, straighten out, make it possible for easy passage, and lift up the banner, make a sign, put up a big pole, put up a tower with a flag on it, you know, something of that nature. So people can see where they're supposed to go and then travel there easily. Make it as straightforward as you possibly can for people to know, understand, and get to the Lord. The message is very simple. We complicate it so much. Surrender and uh, give the Lord your lives. Just to close, last couple, 62.11. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed the end of the world. Say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. They shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. To contrast, you know, that idea of they were being called forsaken. They were being called desolate. And people were not pursuant of them. And here the scripture is telling us, no, he's going to turn that all around for you. It's a wonderful blessing that the Lord does to take our heart where it is. And however we think of ourselves in a negative perspective, God says, no, with me, I can wipe that all away and reverse all of that process. I can make you beloved. I can make you sought after. I can make you the redeemed, the city not forsaken. Redemption. The way that God takes what is ruined and reuses it and rebuilds it and redeems it for his purpose. It's a wonderful thing that God is so gracious and that he's not looking for, you know, those that are perfect and those that are you know, the beautiful people and the good and always, you know, well off. He takes those that are the humble and the halt and the lame and he restores them so that he gets the glory in the process. I find that very reassuring that God isn't searching through the pile, as it were, just looking for that one crown jewel. He's looking through the pile for the junk that's worthless to the world so that he can make it something beautiful and glorify himself in it and say to the world, look at that. Look what I've done with this life. Look what I've done with this person. Look what I've done with this nation. I hope that that you know, rests in your heart and mind as you know, the idea of how loving and gracious God is and the fact that he wants to perform these works in our lives. Amen? So we'll stand and pray and pick up with 63 next week. Father, I thank you again for this place and the ability to be together. Help us to minister to one another in fellowship in these remaining minutes. Fill us with your spirit and help us to care for one another, to bless one another. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.